from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. And this week, well, you know, Halloween is coming. And so I guess I'm supposed to do a Halloween episode. And so, okay, I can play along. Why don't we do a zombie show? We'll have a zombie theme. You know, that's actually an African word, for the record, if we want to sprinkle in some etymologies. That's from Kikongo. That's a, an African language, a Bantu language of the Niger-Congo family, spoken in Angola and some other countries. And the word originally was zumbi, and it was brought here by slaves, actually. So technically, zombie is a black thing. Zombies are, of course, the living dead, you know, the stuff that we keep by extension for no reason. Like I have 900 CDs and I'm not getting rid of them. I have about 400 DVDs. I thought those were really it, permanent. This streaming thing, I'm trying. I still have a protractor. I am just now realizing I no longer need a cable box. In any case, zombie things actually permeate language as well. And you can look at it on various levels. An awful lot of what we use as language and think of as communication is zombie material. So that can be our Halloween theme. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The truth is, I didn't start out planning this episode thinking about Halloween. What really got me going was one of those things where you learn something long past your childhood about something that you think you know everything about. You know, I actually don't know every word in the English language, or I don't know the things that I should know about them, because I just found out this week that victuals is not short for victuals. Victuals apparently doesn't exist. You're not supposed to ever say it that way. I always figured vittles was something that, you know, you heard people saying in old westerns and that these were people who had let the word victuals take the direction that it naturally would if it weren't used in writing. But actually, when you see the word victuals on a page, no matter who is consuming these victuals, it's supposed to be vittles. I had no idea. Peter Sokolowski, I learned that from a tweet of yours sitting on the train, and this whole episode ended up springing into my head over the next five minutes. I was just so surprised. So it's one of those words. It's like, actually, I've never seen this discussed, but chitlins, the intestines of pigs that I grew up not eating, watching my parents, who were not Albanian, but black, eating them and enjoying them very much. And it was called chitlins. They don't smell good when cooked. Apparently, they taste better when eaten. One day, I may find out. But very late in life, I realized that there's something written as chitterlings, which is the chitlins that everybody refers to. And as far as I know, I don't think anybody ever says chitterlings, not in any circumstances. Anybody who says it has to say chitlin. That is the word. Well, apparently vittles is like that. And, you know, this reminds me of, <laughs> you guessed it, but it's actually something I think all of you will like on some level, a Broadway song. 
And it actually comes from something that had decayed in my memory. This is Jelly's Last Jam. And I used to listen to the album all the time. Then for some reason I stopped. And I thought there was a line in one of my favorite cuts in it where somebody says affectionately, it's a black woman who says affectionately, I thought she said, now I'm only going to say this once. I thought the line was chitlin eaten bitches. And I've been singing it that way in my head for you know, 20 years. But actually, it's gumbo eaten. And so anyway, this is Michigan Water Blues. And it's one of the most rocking numbers in this show. I, I love this cut to death. Sometimes when I've had a bit to drink and I'm riding home on the train, I'll just play this because somehow it seems to fit. This is Michigan Water. The singer is Mary Bond Davis, by the way. She never is quite celebrated as a star, and it's not fair. I've seen her in many things, and she always just tears it up. Funny thing, my little daughter is the witty one. She somehow picked up that there's something people say about Philadelphia water that it isn't good. And we were in St. Louis, and we were at this little library, and she took a sip of the water from the fountain, and she said, this water is disgusting. It tastes like Philadelphia water. And the whole library just burst out into laughter. She is going to be the wit. In any case, these fossilized ways of spelling things, it can be very interesting. There are these zombie bees, for example. Take, for example, the word debt. You're in debt. No matter how slowly you say it, you're not going to say debt. It's debt. Now, of course, it comes from debitus. It comes from a word that was that. But after a while, people sang it quickly, started saying just debt. We got it from French as debt, and we were just saying debt. But then some prissy person came along and decided that you had to stick the B back in because there had been one in Latin, as if that makes any kind of sense. And next thing you know, you have this debit. It really is something of a tragedy. Although here, I'm, I'm in an etymology mood today. Here's the etymology of debt. Debitus, that was from de habere. Habere is have. So debitus, debt, comes from what originally meant to, to de-have. In other words, to not have. And of course, if you're in debt to somebody, then you're about to not have something. I thought that was kind of a cute etymology. Doubt is the same thing. It starts in Latin as dubitare. Then say that over and over, and pretty soon in French, you have doter. No more b. That got lost. So dubitare, doter, like that. Well, that comes into English, and it was duton. 
Dutin. There you go. The B was utterly forgotten. But then along comes some person who probably talked like the old character actor Richard Hayden talked kind of like this. We must have the B because of the Latin. And so they stick the B back in and so it becomes Dalbert. Well, why is it Talbot? Just because of that. Or do you have a big giant armchair and read American Heritage magazine? Are you one of those people you sit there reading American Heritage with either tea with a cinnamon stick in it or maybe a, a lager? But you, you're reading American Heritage and you're in a big armchair and probably in an excerpt somewhere. If you were that person, then you read about redoubts because you're reading about battles and the Civil War. Where redoubt is what, some small fortress or something like that. I'm not sure what it is because I'm not really much for reading about the great battles. But if you read about them, you know the word redoubt and you know that it's spelled R-E-D-O-U-B-T. Well, it's not a redoubt, but it's a redoubt. Somebody stuck the B in because they thought that the doubt in redoubt was related to doubt as in being unsure that it comes from a completely different source. Redoubt started as reductus. But some person decided, well, we must also have the B. And now we have to spell it that way. It really doesn't make any sense. So we've got these zombie sounds. You know, I can't even pretend to fit this into the subject matter, but I've just got to do it because I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And, you know, if I ever do do a Broadway podcast, it would go something like this. I just saw Santino Fontana doing the lead role in the Broadway musical of Tootsie. And, you know, he ends up doing something beyond a drag act. It's great writing by David Yazbek because he is one of the best people working now. But I was truly moved by Santino's performance because he's being a woman. But in this, not only does he have to walk around talking like a woman like Dustin Hoffman, but he has to sing as that character. And it has to be convincing. This is a bit of I Won't Let You Down, where here is a man who is being a woman and singing a song, and meaning it, and you actually believe it. It's an amazing feat of performance. Just listen to a bit of this. I won't let you down I'll give you my heart and soul I'll be here to play any role You need me to play I won't let you down Whatever you I won't let you down. That's good. Thank you. Because you believe in me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Or, folks, zombie words. We have words that are living dead. Emolument. Emolument's clause. We've been hearing a lot about that lately. 
And we always have to be told what an emolument is. As it happens, it is things like compensation and special allowances or benefits. Okay. We always have to be told that because none of us who are not lawyers know what an emolument is. I'll openly say that to me, it sounds like some kind of ointment. I would assume that an emolument is what I need to put on my ashy knees. I would love to have various emoluments probably smelling like peaches because I like peach jello, but that's not what emoluments are. They are these special allowances and compensations. Well, why can't we say that? You know, why can't we at best put emolument in parentheses because that's the word in the Constitution and we can't change that. But emoluments clause for us to refer to it as that at all. When for 99.99% of us, that's opaque, is a peculiar thing. To be a language with giant dictionaries is to be a language where a lot of what we call words are unknown to almost all the people who speak the language. It's a weird thing. Now, that's not to say that our vocabulary is supposed to only be the dregs on the bottom of the bucket. So, for example, you can help somebody, or you can aid somebody, or you can assist somebody. Help is original English, aid is from French, assist is from Latin. It's one of those triplets, kind of like kingly, royal, and regal. So, of course, we have words like aid and assist, because life operates on many levels of formality. But we all know what assist means. We all know what compensation means, what allowance means. Those are not gut bucket words, but we know what they mean after the age of you know, roughly 13. But then there are all these words that are in the dictionary. And so we say, well, it's a word because it's in the dictionary. But a lot of the words that are in that dictionary are not ones that any of us know, in which case you wonder if language is supposed to be about communication, why we think of them as part of the language at all. Now, you could imagine that they're part of the earlier phase of the language, like various words of Old English that are opaque to us now. But how come a word like emolument is considered living in any way beyond very narrow legal discussions? Why would the rest of us encounter it and use it in the media? Weird thing. Go into the dictionary and you can find a word like Ruth. And I don't mean Ruth as in the lead character in The Wonderful Glow. I mean Ruth as in Mercy. Because if you can be ruthless, and we all know what that means, well, of course, there was originally a word Ruth. So please show me some Ruth. Well, no, Ruth is not a word. Most of you are probably hearing that for the first time. It does not qualify as a word in any real sense. It's in the dictionary because it used to be a word, but time passes and we're at the end of it. And so it's gone. You ever exped anything? I didn't. I have impeded probably too many things, but exped, well, you know, apparently it's still used by Scottish lawyers. And that's a great thing. Exped is in the dictionary. It's not a word. I mean, it's not even a word that you learn for the SAT or something like that. It's just not a word. So, you know, it might be fun to know words like that just for the heck of it. Did you know that there's expatiate? Expiate is about sin. We all know that one. Expatriate, obvious. Expatiate is to go on too long, <laughs> he says. Well, that's not a word. I learned it actually in language arts. And even back then when I was you know, probably pimply in about 13, I remember thinking, how is this a word when you can tell that nobody knows it outside of this book? 
There used to be a drumming language used by the Kele people. Talk about Kikongo, actually a ways over in Africa. There were the Kele people. And the Kele people were among the Africans who can communicate by drum because their languages have tone. And so you can actually parallel the contours right down to the meanings of words by playing the drums. That's really cool. Now, the Kele language was documented. And there were some words in the drum language that nobody knew what they meant anymore. And so they were just the drum words. Now, that's fine. But how do we think of that? We think of that as, well, that's a tribal thing. Well, how ritualistic, how quaint that nobody knew what those words meant. Well, what about Ruth and Expede and emoluments? It's interesting to see what a language can be like when there isn't that dictionary, because the language is too new and it isn't used in writing very much anyway. So if a word falls out of usage, then it's not then a word that nobody knows what it means, but it's in the dictionary and therefore still a word. Those words just don't exist. And so, for example, a language I've brought up on the podcast fairly often, Saramakan, is a language that formed when slaves escaped from the plantations on the coast of Suriname into the rainforest. And they used about 650 words of English and a bunch of them from Portuguese. And then a whole lot of words from a couple of African languages, one of them called Fon, one of them actually our friend Kikongo. And they fashioned that into what started out as just a kind of makeshift lingo, but because that was the language that these slaves could use among themselves and they spoke different languages, it very quickly became a real language and they made the most of that original yeast of words. And so the language has existed now for 300 and change years and it's a full language. They've got their helps and aids and assists and all of that. But for example, if something worries you in Saramac and it breaks your head, that's how you say worry. That's if you ask, how do you say worry? The first thing they're going to say is boko heidi. It breaks your head. But there's no word like perturb or, or vexatious. Nothing, nothing like that where, you know, especially with vexatious, a lot of us have no idea what it means. And perturb is a word you probably hear once every two years. There's none of that. There are no words that nobody knows, except, of course, in some ritual circumstances, but not when you're talking about urgent things like an impeachment process. There's no such thing as words that don't serve well for communication. So that's just my view on these matters. And of course, I think it's time, since a lot of you are going to disagree for a musical number, this is Dance Around in Your Bones. This is a late 20s song. This is the wonderful Walter Donaldson, whose best known number today is probably Making Whoopi. Wonderful melodist. I think I've used this song on the show before, but you know, this is my 88th episode. I am sure that almost none of you have heard the other 87. And Dance Around in Your Bones, I used it a couple years ago. So this is a very catchy little song, a bit of Halloween, because you can imagine it being skeletons or something like that when it gets too hot for comfort and you can't get ice cream cones ain't no sin take off your skin dance around your bones when that lazy syncopation of the music softly moans ain't no sin take off your skin dance around your bones the polar bears ain't green in greenland they got the right idea they think it's great to refrigerate while we cremate down here. Now just like those bamboo babies from the South Sea Tropic Zone. Pay no sin, take off your skin, dance around your bones. Zombie word order. It's not just the letters and the words. Zombie word order. For example, 
here's something that happens in German. You say, except in German, I go to the movies. Okay. Now, suppose it's tomorrow that you're going to the movies. Well, you'd think that what you would say in German is tomorrow I go to the movies. But you don't say that because go refuses to move. So when I go to the movies, go is in the second place. Okay. Then you say tomorrow I go to the movies. And you think that go would just move over into the third place and I is in the second place and then tomorrow gets to be in the first. But no, when you stick tomorrow on, go sits still. It's like one of those those Zaxes in the, in the Dr. Seuss story. It won't move. So what happens is you say tomorrow go, because go won't move. And so I has to jump over to the other side of go. Tomorrow go I to the movies. So morgen gehe ich ins Kino. That's what you have to say. Tomorrow go I to the movies. What the hell is he talking about? This is what I'm talking about. That is called verb second because the verb insists on sitting in the second place. And that's a queer little thing that happens in Germanic languages. That's a very Germanic thing. Now, it used to be something that was part of how English worked, but it leached out. And so now I have to tell you about the notion of tomorrow go I to the theater. But there's still a remnant of it. There's still like that fly caught between the window and the screen. And it has to do with something that we use in writing without even thinking. So take this. This is from a very obscure, undersung series of books about a certain Harry Potter. So, ooh, you look much tastier than Crab and Goyle, Harry, said Hermione, before catching sight of Ron's raised eyebrows. What is that? Why not Hermione said? And you could say Hermione said, but instead we're used to it being said Hermione with all of a sudden the subject after the verb. That's a remnant of the time when the verb refused to move out of place. So, ooh, you look much tastier than Crab and Goyle, Harry, said Hermione. That is classic verb second. Or, no, I'm not retorted Hermione. I'm hoping to do some good in the world. Have you ever thought how odd that is? That is a remnant of good old Germanic verb second. So if we find it odd when a German person says, tomorrow go I to the theater, except in German, that's not at all odd when we're used to things like, no, I'm not, retorted Hermione. Very peculiar thing. It's zombie word order. It's just kind of this living, dead verb second. And yet we can listen to something like William's Doll from Free to Be You and Me. Yes, this is Alan Alda and Marlo Thomas singing almost 50 years ago at this point. This has always been one of my favorite numbers from it. And I don't think I'm alone in this, but it's that same thing with the verb second business with said. Listen to this. Five years old, he wanted a doll to hug and hold. A doll, said William, is what I need to wash and clean and dress and feed. A doll to give a bottle to and put to bed when day is through. And any time my doll gets ill, I'll take good care of it, said my friend Bill. A doll, a doll. William wants a dog, don't be a sissy, said his best friend did. Why should a boy want to play with a dog? Dolls are for girls, said his cousin Fred. Don't be a jerk, said his older brother. I know what to do, said 
his father to his mother. Then one more thing. This is going to annoy some of you. Is zombie conjugation, zombie verb marking, and what I mean by that is, well, you sit down, but you set a cup on the table. Okay, you raise the card from the table, but if you start coming up out of your seat up into the air, well, then you are rising. Okay. And in the same way, you are lying on the floor, but you lay the card down on the table. Now I lay me down to sleep upon which I am lying asleep. Now we're told that to be somebody who you know, doesn't smell bad. You're supposed to maintain that distinction between lie and lay. But you have to be told it, and people flout it all the time. And so I'm laying down over here in the corner. Somebody will say, and that drives a certain kind of person crazy. Oh, it's it's laying over there. Well, no, you're not supposed to say that because it's just it's just sitting there, and so it's lying over there. Well, you know. It's an interesting distinction to maintain. I can do it when I've had my coffee. I have messed it up actually on this show and been politely scolded on Twitter for it. And the reason is because that is something that used to make sense. It used to be living. It was part of a pattern. Many, many verbs did that. And one that you wouldn't even think of now is drink and drench. If you think about it, drenching is making something drink. That used to be just the way the language worked. So you wouldn't have to just master this business of lying and laying. You had a whole bunch of verbs that did it. Whereas today, it's really just down to lie, lay, sit, set, and rise, raise. And notice with sit and set that nobody seems to get as upset. If you say I'm going to sit this cup here on the table, it's not likely that somebody on the other side of the room is going to throw a spitball at you and tell you that you should have said set it on the table. There's just this fetishization about lie and lay. And you know, frankly, I think it sounds great to say I'm laying down over here. And you might argue, you know, Benjamin Dreyer and Mary Norris and Brian Garner probably feel differently than I do. There's a subjectivity here, but you might argue, isn't it arbitrary to just keep lie lay when really it's a dead rule and nobody really minds with sit set. Then there's raise and rise, which nobody has any trouble with, and that pretty much takes care of it. Why are we so upset about that one? For example, with plurals, why don't we keep kind for cow? Did you know kind was actually the original plural for cow? Why not keep it? We let that go. Well, if we let kind go, and we can almost imagine letting lice go. You know, why does Laos have an irregular plural, given how marginal they usually are to life? You wouldn't mind just saying Laos's. And in fact, that's exactly what you say if you're calling a person a Laos. Folks, I'm not going to play Diamonds or a Girl's Best Friend, but Broadway fans imagine that I did. Laos's go back to their spouses. So we let kind go. You know, in Scotland, there are people who can say shoein for shoes. Shoes, shoein. Well, why didn't we keep those? They fell away. Lie and lay is trying to fall away and we just won't let it out. It's like we're in the mafia, you know, just when I think I'm getting out, whatever that expression was. Just saying, you know, order is a kind of clarity, I would think. And order would be that I could lay in the corner and nobody would think there was anything wrong with me. In any case, with rising and raising, a little bit of on the 20th century's I Rise Again. This is John Cullum singing in 1979. And there are a couple of interesting little linguistic 
lessons in this song. So take a listen to this part of I Rise again. Spray flit at them. I'll face those grim goliaths with my slingshot and I'll hit at them with my back up against the wall. Angry birds pecking with their beaks or submerged, sealed inside a tomb that challenge brings the roses to my cheeks. So rally round me, my musketeering men. We'll turn that raging lynch mob into cheering men. From the false reports of my demise, like the phoenix right before their eyes, with my back up against the wall, I rise again. I rise again. It's interesting. He says <laughs> he's talking about I hit at them. These villains hit at them. That's interesting because it implies that you're not quite succeeding. I hit them. I hit. At them, just that at conveys that he's waving his hands in the air and he's not quite getting rid of them. It's interesting how language works, and that actually difference. That actually difference. You might keep that in between hit them and hit at them. That actually has a name. That is a kind of what linguists call anti-passive. I've been trying to slip that into this show for three years now, and I finally did. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. But also listen to pecking with their beaks. Angry birds pecking with their beaks. If you think about it, what else would they peck with? I love that line. You can imagine a hypothetical language where if you can say that the birds are pecking with their beaks, like what else would they peck with their backs? You could say something like, well, I ate it with my mouth. <laughs> I, I smelled it with my nose. <laughs> there could be a language like that that was just oddly redundant in that way. I sat down with my butt. It's just an interesting thing. Pecking with their beaks. Peeing with the, all right, I will sit down now. But by the way, if you want to know what the fate of the word university in English has to do with Yosemite Sam, then I think you need yourself some Slate Plus. Slate Plus gives you an extra bit at the end of every show. And more to the point, for a nominal fee, if you pay for Slate Plus, two things happen. One, you don't have to listen to any ads by me or anybody else. And two, it helps pay for not only this podcast, but all of the other fine podcasts that Slate does. So sign up for Slate Plus and you learn new things. You get a tidbit and that tidbit is not available online. I actually have never heard any of my Slate Plus segments, but you get more stuff. And also, for those of you who don't like the Broadway clips, I usually don't play them in the little clip of Slate Plus. In any case, in Aratum, folks, I said in the last show that sweet meat was pancreas. And no, that's not true. Sweet bread is pancreas. But still, that shows bread used to have a broader meaning than it does these days. But somebody told me on the Twitter, actually, and I hate to say that I've already lost it, but you know who you are and thank you. Sweet bread is pancreas. You know what? I'm just, just this one more time, back to that Tootsie song. This is the end of I Won't Let You Down. Just listen to how this man actually sings as a woman convincingly. I was deeply touched by this performance and I can be hard to touch sometimes. Please make the right choice. Remember my voice. I won't let you down. 
I love you a lot I won't let you down I won't let you down For those of you who don't want that let's let's funk it up a little bit to go out this is um just good ham and cheese this is Saturday in the Park by Chicago. My older daughter, Dahlia, used to love this one when she was tiny because she did understand the word Saturday. And so she used to sing along with it. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I'm John McWhorter. Waiting for.